Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. In the introduction to Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in Consultations, I concentrated on the impact of uncertainty on clinicians. Before going into detail about how clinicians can sort out uncertainty by using the appropriate skills, which is what following episodes will be all about, I thought it was important to remember that there's another party in the consultation who is also affected by uncertainty. Clinicians are often worried about sharing uncertainty with patients. Is it empowering or is it frightening? How should we approach this tricky area? So in this introduction part two, I'm going to consider the effects of uncertainty on our patients. When troubling symptoms or serious illness occur, patients can find it harder to cope with uncertainty even than their clinicians, because their own health, even their own existence could be at stake. Patients' concerns mirror the uncertainty clinicians faced and can be also classified into analysing uncertainty, negotiating uncertainty, network uncertainty and teamworking uncertainty. I'm going to begin by thinking about patients' responses to uncertainty and then I'm going to explore the impact of different clinician-patient relationship styles and how they interact and how that affects uncertainty. And I'm also going to briefly talk about skills and strategies for sharing uncertainty with patients. There is a detailed description and discussion of the skills needed to use when talking about uncertainty with patients in the core module, TALC 5, number one, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Skills for discussing uncertainty. Stephen Covey is famous for saying, seek first to understand and then be understood. And when we're approaching uncertainty with patients, I think there are two aspects that we have to understand. Firstly, what is uncertainty like for patients in general? And secondly, what is uncertainty like for the specific individual patient in a consultation with us? There is no one size fits all option. Both patients and clinicians differ in their responses to uncertainty and each situation needs a suitably nuanced approach. Choosing the most appropriate response for each patient is much easier if you understand the kind of uncertainty that the patient is experiencing. And in this TALP module, we're going to discuss this in detail. Recognising the different kinds of clinician-patient relationships that affect uncertainty can also help clinicians to choose a style suitable for each particular situation. Being able to build a good relationship with the patient and make choices about the way the clinician relationship develops with the patient facilitates the specific skills and strategies needed to talk about uncertainty effectively. Patients' uncertainties can be classified similarly to the way we've thought about classifying clinicians' uncertainties. Like clinicians, patients find diagnoses helpful. A diagnosis can help a patient to make sense of their experiences, to understand the treatment options open to them and to orientate them to their prognosis. When the diagnosis is not clear, the uncertainties that patients grapple with 
are mirrored by the uncertainties experienced by their clinicians. Patients also experience considerable uncertainty when they're trying to understand treatment plans, especially when referral investigations or other teams are involved. There are echoes of what many clinicians may feel in this woman's experience of caring for her sick partner, which was reported on a Macmillan Cancer Patients Forum. She says, What am I missing? What if I'd paid more attention two or three years ago to his vague complaints of ill health and pressed him for it to get a scan instead of focusing on my own concerns? What if I researched another treatment or did another search or went to another patient conference? What if I got a juicer and made him drink raw kale juice? There has to be something I can do, but there isn't really. Or is there? These doubts really mirror the kind of uncertainties that many clinicians feel. As with clinicians, a patient's uncertainties can be divided into similar types. So I'm going to begin by going through these different ones and thinking about how they might affect patients. So what about analysing uncertainties when there's one clinician and one patient, but the diagnosis or nature of the problem is not really clear? When patients are faced with uncertainties where the diagnosis remains unclear, they often long for their condition to be given a name and they can find it difficult to cope with vagueness or uncertainty. Sometimes a doctor's investigations or a clinician's tests will be driven more by a fear of litigation or getting it wrong. This may do very little to clarify things for patients. They may not find it very helpful to have things ruled out when they're hoping for something to be ruled in. A patient's uncertainties can be compounded if there is no unifying diagnosis or if more than one diagnosis is playing a part in their illness. Getting a firm diagnosis may also be the trigger for many further uncertainties. What will happen now? Will I survive? Will I be able to cope? Interestingly, in some situations, these new uncertainties may even help patients. For example, in one study, a positive human immunodeficiency HIV test was found to be a life-changing piece of news. Some men who were tested for HIV actually refused to get their test results. However, their mood disturbance decreased after they found out that they were HIV positive, which is perhaps unexpected. Although there were new uncertainties about prognosis and treatment, these seem to be offset by a greater sense of overall control. Patients also have questions about their illnesses that are of a more existential and general nature going beyond simply what is the diagnosis. And in the analysing quadrant, we have to pay attention to these questions which are sometimes left unspoken. Patients may be thinking, what has happened to me? Why has it happened? Why has it happened to me specifically? And why has it happened now? What would happen if nothing was done about it? What are the effects on other people, such as my family or my employers? Clinicians may not have direct answers to such questions, but being aware of these key issues for patients can allow concerns to be explored and to put into a unique context for each individual. This may mean explaining that a condition is bad luck, or if there is a precipitating factor, such as smoking, reassuring someone of our continued treatment, care and concern. The core talc skills of Module 1, which is about preparing and starting well, 
Module 2, which is about building a good relationship, and Module 3, which includes skills for gathering a wide range of different types of information, are all crucial in helping patients to navigate these uncertainties. What about patients and networking uncertainties? In other words, what uncertainties crop up around patients' expectations and understanding of referrals or investigations? Making a diagnosis is sometimes seen as a one-off event that happens at a defined moment. In practice, clinicians know that making a diagnosis is an iterative process that may involve revision and amendment as new information becomes available, and lots of different information can affect the diagnosis. The passage of time may change our assessment, the evolution of symptoms, or new information from referrals, tests or investigations. All this can give patients considerable anxiety about networking uncertainties. Of course, before seeing a clinician, many patients will have done their own networking, checking with family, with friends or even Dr Google about the best way forwards. This may have a big influence on their expectations about investigations, and clinicians are wise to explore and acknowledge the reasoning behind patients' own concerns. Clinicians also need to be able to explain their own clinical reasons and why that might lead to different conclusions about tests and investigations. The skills of core modules TALC 3 and 4 are very important here. Patients are not always as keen for tests as doctors may think. Sometimes they express this by not turning up as expected for investigations. Considerable uncertainty about how to use the diagnostic can occur for patients if they're not proficient in English or they're illiterate, and clinicians need to bear this in mind. Referral pathways can be very complex to patients, involving multiple phone calls, passwords, puzzling or contradictory letters from automated systems and so on. Being aware of this can alert the clinician to the need to explore and understand the patient's specific uncertainty tailoring explanations and support accordingly. When investigations are rather complicated, the patient can end up feeling that they are less important than the scan. One account spoke of the possible disappearance of the person behind the images, which I think is a risk in modern medicine. Following up people after referral can help to manage the uncertainty they feel while waiting for their test results or for plans of care to emerge from secondary services. One way for doctors and other clinicians to develop a better understanding of the patient's point of view is to look at some of the patient forums on websites such as Macmillan Organisation where poignant comments express patients' experiences. For example, we are both crying today as my husband is scared of what the oncologist will say on Monday about the scan results. While clinicians sometimes think they know what the appropriate management is once a diagnosis has been made, patients will often experience considerable uncertainty when they're negotiating what's going to happen to them. This can cause difficulties because patients often struggle to link their own experiences with the ideas that their clinicians have about treatment. There are different approaches to decision-making and there are, these are explored more fully later on. When the consultation seems to get stuck because the patient is uncertain whether or how to take up the treatment options offered by the clinician, then skills such as negotiation, 
motivational interviewing, shared decision-making, talking about risk, and coping with psychosocial issues come to the fore. This patient, in their own words, summarises some of the pros and cons of a so-called doctor-centred versus a patient-centred approach. They say, we've gained today in that we as patients, we're wiser and we can challenge. And when something's wrong, we can take it further. But what we've lost is permission for it not to be all on our shoulders. The clinician says, therefore, it must be correct. Now it feels like everything's on our shoulders, which is good, but bad. I think that quotation illustrates the ambivalence we have about sharing decision making and making plans. The skills of relationship building, expressing empathy and kindness, and the specific skills of shared decision making can all ameliorate this sense of isolation and over-responsibility. And these are covered in the core TALP modules 2 and 4. While clinicians are often very aware of the difficulties of working in an effective team, clinicians may not be aware of the great uncertainties of the team working type that patients experience, especially those with chronic or serious illnesses. Clinicians may not really appreciate the complexities of care at home, what it's like to care for a relative with dementia or late-stage cancer, and how this can have an immense impact on family and other carers. Patients are often very unsure about how or when to contact teams or what to expect from their professionals. Having many different professionals involved can be very challenging and create uncertainties of their own. These uncertainties are also reflected in the experiences of nursing staff caring for very sick patients at home. District nurses in Scandinavia doing palliative care remarked that they felt like cowards and also experienced meaninglessness, uncertainty, shame, irresolution and insufficiency in the trying situations. And I think most patients and carers also experience very similar stresses when they're trying to manage and understand the input of multiple professionals. Many patients feel a sense of isolation when facing serious illness, sometimes even after treatment is complete. I'm going to quote from a patient who echoes the existential questions I brought up earlier on. She says, I'm struggling with the uncertainty. The focus of getting through the treatment has gone now and I'm frightened for the future. How long have I got? Will it spread? When will it return? Last week I desperately wanted the oncologist to say everything will be okay, but of course nobody can say that. I'm struggling knowing there is no full stop to this nightmare. Clinicians such as general practitioners can certainly help the patient by allowing such fears to be acknowledged and sensitively explored in follow-up consultations. And we should think about who the patient might want to approach for support and how difficult that might be for them. There are many different clinician-patient relationships and this influences responses to uncertainty. The specific nature of the clinician-patient relationship affects which kinds of uncertainties can be discussed and whether patients can accept that their clinicians may also be uncertain. Patients contribute a lot to the meanings that emerge in the intricate interaction between clinician and patient because there's a sort of negotiation of what subjects are acceptable. These complexities can confuse both parties. 
Patients may interpret illness and make decisions in different ways to their clinicians, and this brings new responsibilities for patients. Remember, many, if not most, treatments have a failure rate as well as a success rate. In some situations, this is readily accepted by both parties, especially if the benefits to be expected outweigh the risks of side effects or failure. And there has been an increasing willingness to share information about risks and benefits, which raises uncertainties for patients about whether to accept treatment. The clinician-patient relationship in this decision-making and negotiating aspect of care has been described by Emmanuel and Emmanuel as being one of four different kinds. The most traditional and default style is the kind of clinician-knows-best approach, which occurs with paternalist clinicians who make decisions for the patient. This isn't always doctors who do this either. In many situations, people hope for this. For example, if your life is being threatened because you have a multiple injury and you're in an emergency department, you kind of hope that the special expertise of the team will just get on without asking you too much about what to do. Doctors in such situations may be reluctant to disclose uncertainty even to relatives, and research suggests that patients can have mixed responses to such disclosures. In the past, most clinicians kept their workings out to themselves and did not discuss investigations or probabilities of failure with patients. Paternalistic clinicians feel that discussing uncertainty results in unnecessary anxiety and loss of trust. The research shows very mixed findings about this. When patients are very ill, for example, a study in patients making decisions about ischemic heart disease, about 40% of them reached a decision they were happy with, but 40% did have increased anxiety and 70% still cited their physician as being the most important factor in decision making. And these were patients who were making decisions about whether to accept high risk cardiac surgery with a real possibility of death with or without surgery. They were, however, prepared to talk about the risks and face the possible consequences. However, their final decisions sometimes reflected their so-called unconditional trust in the clinician offering the treatment and also their existential disinclination to face a kind of fading away into death. Many clinicians routinely overestimate the benefits of treatment and they underestimate the risks. And so patients should perhaps be more cautious about taking the word of paternalistic clinicians at face value. If such a clinician gets it wrong, or the patient suffers unexpected treatment failure, the disappointment can be huge. In this setting, patients even react badly to paternalistic clinicians looking things up or checking information as it seems to undermine them. Perhaps it's best to avoid a simplistic clinician knows best approach and involve patients from the start. Another increasingly common style of interaction could be called the informant clinician. The informant clinician avoids instructions and gives patients information to help them make an informed choice for themselves. At first, this may seem like a good approach. However, it can leave patients feeling alone and uncertain with all the responsibility being devolved to the less expert party, i.e. the patient. We know from a lot of research that in many situations, having more choices simply increases anxiety. Patients may feel ill-equipped to make complex health decisions. 
And although avoiding the overly paternalistic approach, clinicians can still act as informed guides for patients by adopting something that goes beyond informing patients to what has been called a more interpretive style, where the clinician helps to interpret the meaning of the information being discussed. The interpretative clinician goes beyond leaving the patient to make a choice themselves and guides decision-making using expert knowledge. But importantly, they also incorporate the patient's own values and priorities. Such a process is what is properly meant by shared decision-making, as both parties are involved, and it is discussed in detail in the core TALP modules 4 and 5. Patients do want more involvement in decisions. This is most relevant when the outcome of a treatment is uncertain, or it only works in some patients, or when there is equipoise of some other kind in the decision-making and there is no clear-cut best treatment option. We know that patients want to be consulted more about their care and to be involved, especially in significant decisions. The phrase, no decision about me without me, captures that idea clearly. Is this going to be enough in situations of great complexity or end-of-life care? Accepting the risks of surgery or chemotherapy may be a way of avoiding more challenging uncertainties about the approaching end of life. Offering choices about heroic or toxic treatments at the end of life may seem to offer patients the best chance of survival. However, patients also need opportunities to think about bigger issues with the support and accompaniment of their clinicians. It has been said that we cannot judge a life by its length, but by its quality. And facing severe illness or the natural approach of the end of life, what really matters to patients? And how can we help patients to focus on what is really important to them? The deliberative clinician can help with this by going beyond the interpretative approach and helping the patient to explore their health-related values, the values that can actually be realised in the clinical situation they're facing, and perhaps even to reflect on which of those values are more worthy and more likely to be aspired to. The clinician here is acting more like a teacher or friend, engaging in a dialogue about what values are most important to the patient at the time, and perhaps even helping them to understand what medical care would be about, what decision would be admirable. In Being Mortal, Atul Gawande describes the uncertainty and difficult decisions encountered when his own father developed a slowly progressive spinal tumour. There were not only decisions about his medical care to make, but also decisions about what kind of life he now wanted and what kind of death he was hoping to approach. How much risk was he prepared to put up with when should he stop treatment and when should he gracefully accept that death was approaching? These are existential and moral uncertainties as much as medical ones. And such issues, although challenging, are part of the dialogue that patients hope to have with their clinician. Clinicians who are willing to listen to these concerns and discuss things openly can give huge satisfaction and great comfort to their patients, even in the most dire situations. We need, obviously, to have strategies and skills for discussing uncertainties with patients. This includes sharing our clinical reasoning and using appropriate explaining and framing skills, 
as well as developing the clinician-patient relationship in a way that's supportive and empathic. Developing closer relationships can seem daunting for some clinicians who may be more comfortable dealing with thoughts, ideas and scientific concepts than dealing with messy feelings and relationships. However, time spent developing the skills of building relationships will be more than repaid. Skilled conversations with patients lead to improvements in patient satisfaction, their adherence with treatment plans, the psychological outcomes that they experience, and is much more satisfying for clinicians. All the TALC core skills of modules one to six will be of great help here. I want to say a little bit more about sharing clinical reasoning. Clinicians are sometimes wary about discussing uncertainty with patients, believing that this decreases trust and increases anxiety, although they freely acknowledge such uncertainty when talking with colleagues. How uncertainty is expressed is very important. Simply saying, I don't know, does not really inspire trust. Knowing what to do about uncertain situations using strategies such as watchful waiting or appropriate investigation can be useful. And there are many useful phrases for use when talking about uncertain situations. I will mention some of them here, and this is discussed in much more detail in TALC Module 5, Chapter 1, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? Skills for Talking About Uncertainty With Patients. Here are a few useful phrases. There are several possibilities here. Is more helpful than saying, I don't know what the problem is. Trying, let me talk you through my thoughts because things are a bit inconsistent. Then go through your clinical reasoning. The patient will understand the situation that you're in and thinking aloud can sometimes resolve clinicians' own uncertainties. Another very useful phrase is to say, on the one hand this and on the other hand something else. This can be a way to highlight the dilemma or difficult decision while demonstrating your thinking skills to the patient and this increases trust. If tests are anticipated to rule out a problem, anticipate this beforehand and start to initiate planning for that by saying something like this. If these tests are normal, as we both hope they will be, then we will work on improving your pain by doing certain things. Another way to build trust in relationships is to say something like, may I ask you to ring and leave a message about what happens at the clinic or after you've been to A&E, for example. This shows continuing concern, building trust. In our highly globalised world, referral can yield unexpected uncertainty for clinicians and patients alike, and Google makes this more manifest. For example, American clinicians with the same information refer for surgery twice as often as UK-based physicians, and patients may be aware of this and puzzled by it. Where rates of investigation are very high, there will also be high rates of what people have called incidental omas. These are chance finding which do not have much clinical significance. Clinicians need to be aware of this and actually skilled in explaining what these are, avoiding over-treatment and in effect being good at breaking good news. If you have an ongoing relationship with a patient, you might find yourself acting like a referee or an arbiter when specialists disagree or suggest mutually incompatible treatments. 
For example, somebody treating asthma may want a patient to stop beta blockers, whereas their cardiologist may insist that they continue. Primary care physicians can sometimes make decisions based on better knowledge of the patient, sharing their thinking with the patient and involving them in a shared decision-making process. Finally, support your colleagues in sharing uncertainty because acceptance and discussion may reveal ways through uncertainty that can also be shared with patients. Having appropriate explaining and framing skills can be quite complex. In contrast with secondary care settings where certainty is highly prized, in primary care we have to accept that the nature of many illnesses may remain uncertain. Investigations are often likely to be quite fruitless. Excessive testing risks the creation of a cascade of negative findings that leaves the patient none the wiser but ever more anxious. In indeterminate illnesses, with clearly no alarm features and normal physical examination findings, the way the explanation is framed affects recovery. Patients who were told that all would, was likely to be well within a few weeks had faster rates of recovery than those where the clinician expressed uncertainty about the illness. In patients who present with non-specific tiredness, with no alarm features, most recover in a few weeks. Only those who have fatigue that persists require testing. Thus, a positive message of effective recovery is a reasonable way to deal with many cases of tiredness of uncertain cause when there's no red flags. Obviously, safety netting is an important feature of this so that patients can access care quickly if things aren't resolving. The use of framing concepts can help patients to decide what patients to pursue. So a patient reading on the internet that a private provider has a 20% success rate for IVF may not really consider that that actually means the treatment will fail at least four times out of five. And it is the responsibility of physicians to help people understand that. Patients with a 10% risk of cardiovascular disease and who've been told they have, could have a 30% decrease in risk of treatment need to be able to consider that that means that only three patients like them out of 100 will benefit from the treatment. The big problem being we don't know which three will benefit. The other 97 will take treatment for many years without benefit. Remember all consultations have both psychological and social components and developing empathic relationships is crucial to help uncertainty be managed better by patients. There are concerns that this may make patients feel too dependent, but this could be mitigated by using a technique called touch and go empathy. In this, the patient's feeling is noted and accurately named and the consultation takes a brief pause so that the patient knows they've been understood. The clinician then allows the rest of the consultation to continue. There are specific techniques, including the bathe technique, to explore and discuss a patient's concerns around uncertainty and indeed other issues. And this is an effective way to communicate empathy in areas of difficulty or concern. See TALP module four, which covers this in detail. Another set of skills which is very helpful when working with patients who are uncertain are skills which are called holding skills. These support patients going through emotional and practical challenges. 
Realistically, most patients do not expect clinicians to fix everything, but they really value the clinician's personal interest in them and their problems. When patients are experiencing the uncertainty of serious illness and navigating complex care pathways, a continuing relationship with a clinician who will listen and accept them in a non-judgmental manner without imposing their own values and attitudes can be of really crucial importance. And there are some key elements of holding skills because these skills create a safe space in which patients' concerns, emotions and challenging conversations can safely happen. So here are some key actions. First of all, check what information people need. Give them the information that they can cope with and ask them how much information they want. Check out if they'd like a bit more by asking a question such as, what other information do you need now? Acknowledge and articulate the emotional distress without trying to make it all go away. Simply naming feelings and empathising helps a lot. Remember to respect people's intuition and wisdom about their own lives. They know more about their own lives than you do and respect each person's differences. Recognise that those differences may lead patients to making choices that we would not make ourselves and we can encourage autonomy so that people can make their own choices. Accompanying people through difficult situations and being there to listen can be incredibly helpful without giving the clinician the responsibility for trying to fix everything. I've often wondered whether modern medical practice actually increases uncertainty and anxiety for patients. The power of modern medicine to preserve life might be expected to reduce uncertainty about health and illness. And yet, perhaps paradoxically, patients may be more anxious about their health nowadays and seek medical advice more often. Consultation rates have been increasing. In 1995, there were 3.9 consultations per patient per year. In 2008, this had gone up to 5.5 consultations each year. And by 2014, the overall consultation rate had climbed to 8.5 consultations per year, although some of the increase was accounted for by consultations with other primary care professionals other than GPs. The complexity of general practice consultations has also increased. Moreover, it also feels that patients are more likely to feel angry with clinicians and health services in general. Perhaps the power of many medical advances has created a false sense of security, the idea that medicine can fix everything. This can lead to disappointment and anger if things don't go according to plan. Clinicians' use of scientific developments also increases our concentration on the technical and rational aspects of practice. However, subjective issues and relationships play a big part in all areas of our clinical work. Being able to understand and work with patients' subjective experiences, our ability to be flexible to the nuance of individual patients and to use empathy to build our relationships means that the art of medicine is very important and will not disappear. This is what effective care requires. The Bristol inquiry into the deaths of children undergoing heart surgery and the events described in the Francis report have changed our understanding. And perhaps this means we need to move, as Smith says, to an active rather than a passive trust. 
where clinicians share and discuss uncertainty. It means being aware of and listening to patients' concerns and acting upon them. The need to talk about and tolerate uncertainty has been called the next medical revolution. And this means that doctors, clinicians and professionals of all kinds need to develop their own skills in understanding and managing uncertainty, as well as being able to discuss it appropriately with patients. The next podcasts will discuss the skills that are needed to evaluate and deal with all different kinds of uncertainty in more detail. Thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do, by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy, is available online and through all good bookshops.